This is Terrify Me, a podcast about scary things in fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm your host, Anthony Frost. This week is a bit more of a casual one. Uh, I'm hanging out with a friend who goes by the name of Orveris, and we're speaking a little bit about Mothman, primarily. The conversation does go a little bit off the rails towards the end, uh, but, you know, I think it's fun. So, uh, Orveris is a Cherokee man born and raised in rural West Virginia. He's been a teacher, an IT technician, a molecular biologist, and occasionally a writer. Much of his work draws upon his experiences as a native and the rich folklore of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, just before we dive into the chat, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast in the first month. Um, At the time of recording, uh, yeah, things are going better than I actually expected they would. Uh, Hopefully, things will continue to improve in terms of listener numbers and things like that. yeah, I'm trying to bring up a bit more of a varied schedule in the next few weeks. Get back to doing some more of the folklore deep dives. Lengthier as well. I, I think what I'm going to try and do is have some guest co-hosts on those episodes so that I'm never actually alone and just talking into a microphone like a crazy person. Uh, it's I don't want to feel like Alex Jones, if you know what I mean. Hopefully that'll all come together fairly easily over the next few weeks. But yeah, that little tiny bit of housekeeping aside, let's dive in. Hello, Orvarus. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Right, so we're um, we're going to have a little bit of a chat about Mothman and other cryptids, amongst other things. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, so but first off, let's uh, get to know you a little bit, shall we? Um, so what, what got you into all the sort of the spooky side of life? Um, well, it came at it from a lot of different angles. As a kid, I loved anything with monsters in it, from Godzilla movies, old school horror movies that weren't too, too scary for a little kid, like The Wolfman, um, you know, books. The first book I ever read on my own, because my mother refused to read it to me, was a little little book about the Loch Ness Monster nonfiction, which explains a lot. Um, one of the teachers had this little book about America's very own monsters, which had things like Bigfoot, the White River Monster, Mothman and stuff. And that kind of introduced me to the wider world of things. And me being a giant nerd kid that I was and still am, um, I, I immediately made my family take me to the library and find anything I could on the subject and exhausted at least four local libraries worth of material. Perfect. Sounds like a good, strong start. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, about like uh, the American monsters thing. Uh, that's something North America is really good for is stories about uh, cryptids and other things of that nature you know like uh there's a lot of really unique things um like in that realm because in the uk we have like very little but i think that's just because of how overdeveloped the island is whereas uh, in north america you still got enough wild space to sort of su- at least support the idea of unknown creatures like bigfoot and 
the Jersey Devil. Yeah, I, I think anyone who has had the pleasure of being here probably really underestimates how much nature there can be, especially even some of our larger cities. You go 10 minutes outside of city limits and it's uh, ravines and hills and valleys and rivers and you could walk in and no one would ever see you again. Mm, yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. It is not like that in the UK, not at all. Like the, the, there is not a square mile in the UK without multiple people in it. I don't think. Yeah, I'd be I'd be sincerely surprised surprised if you could actually go, you know, more than a day without seeing another human being in the UK, unless you just shut yourself inside. That's that's what I've heard. I've never had the pleasure, but I know that's one of the big warnings they give to tourists who like to hike here is. It's not like it is in the UK or Central Europe where you can just kind of take off in the woods. And if you get lost, you can keep walking until you hit a village or a town or something. Some places you can just keep walking. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Actually, funny enough, um, someone I went to school with moved to the US largely because she loves hiking and stuff like that. And she like, she immaculately plans these like big old multi-day sort of trail runs and hikes and stuff and she'll just do like hundreds of miles on foot but it's all like immaculately planned and she knows exactly which way she's got to go where she's got to go because if she didn't plan it properly then she would just die like you know yeah. she's in she's in uh, the pacific northwest um, oh especially and, up there mm -hmm, yeah but yeah so you you developed an interest in monster movies uh and cryptids and such quite early on and you're a, you're Appalachian, is that correct? You're from, from That's correct. I was born in West Virginia, and I always say semi-rural West Virginia because my actual house I grew up in is technically not the most rural, but the way West Virginia works is if I keep walking 10 minutes past where I live, you're again hitting that no one would ever find your body level of wilderness. Mm. And my parents grew up in extremely rural West Virginia, so... Um, coal miners because everyone's family is coal miners in West Virginia. So, so um, would you be able to give me a bit of a like a basic intro to what Appalachia is like? Because uh, all I know of Appalachia is that like folk magic is a thing there. Because I, I come from a sort of like a background of having been involved in like I, like knowing a lot of people who are into like witchcraft and the occult and stuff like that. And I know that Appalachian folk magic is a thing. Um, there's a specific mm -hmm. term for it, which I can't recall, but I, don't, I know nothing else about Appalachia other than it's rural. Granny magic, powwow. Powwow is the Pacific Dutch version. Right. Um, sometimes it's just witchcraft. Or sometimes it's just, there's not really a name for some of it. It, it is saturated in the culture. When mm. I was diagnosed as, with having asthma as a kid, my mother's father cut a branch off a willow tree about a meter long and said that if I keep it under my bed, when I outgrow it, I'll outgrow the asthma. And okay. stuff like this, that is ubiquitous. The equivalent of like throwing salt over your shoulder and other things. And there are places where it gets to be even more than that. It's not something I've had a lot of firsthand experience with, but I know more than one practice practitioner in the area. That's very interesting. 
so uh, how does that intersect with your uh, because you're you're a native american and mm-hmm. uh I, I, I don't know what the demographics are like in that part of the world is there is um like a community Appalachia's tend to be mixed well depends on what part of appalachia um mm-hmm. west virginia there's some segregation depending on which side of the mountains you tend to be on but a lot of those communities grew out of the old coal camp communities and they were heavily mixed um i i'm not quite that old to remember what it was like but i know my parents and my grandparents would tell tales of how every little ethnic group would have their own little local store you had the swedish store you had italian immigrants you had the irish immigrants you had people coming from all over down south that's how my my ancestors came out of the reservation in oklahoma to work the mines um once you go a little further afield to the well, frankly, to the more plantation parts of Appalachia, out of the mountains, you get a lot more upper-class immigrant stock. It's a lot less diverse beyond just modern-day cities where you'd find anywhere. So it's an interesting mix. Um, mm. I highly recommend the movie Mate One if you want to know some of the l- less supernatural side of the culture in the area it covers the coal mine wars which if you're unaware um were the first time the air force was used against united states citizens uh, their own citizens oh, wow. that was the union wars um in some circles it's referred to as the second civil war so yeah, I've never heard of that actually. It's yeah, definitely it something I have to look up. Very well known. Hmm. I'll definitely have to look that up. Yeah, you'll have to remind me um, after we're done here. You'll have to. Of course. Yeah, remind me of that movie name, and I'll, I'll give that a watch and go from there. So, um, your, your background in Appalachia and your early interest in cryptids and your sort of identity of, uh, uh, as a native. Like, do all those things because you, you do write a bit um mm-hmm. uh, do you use all of that in your writing do you feel like you draw quite heavily on all of that um well i do have other influences um being a huge nerd comic books and godzilla movies are are a big part of my <laughs> lexicon there um i think a lot of my more u- unique stuff does draw upon that because I just find it fascinating the the w- history the wilderness the pushing of cultures against each other um there's a saying that west virginia where it's kind of centrally located is the westernmost eastern state the southernmost northern state the northernmost cent- southern state and the easternmost western state because it's kind of the intersection of all those cultures and places right there in, in addition to being its own it's the only state completely contained within the appalachian mountain range and mm. again um you may not be aware um people will look at the rockies which are just huge towering mountains and compared to them the appalachians are are foothills but the reason for that is Appalachians are some of the oldest mountains on earth. Oh, yeah. um, we used to go and 
play around in the shale. There's places where mining had, you know, stripped any kind of soil and, or vegetation and get to the old, old rocks below. And you would find fish fossils and trilobites and petrified wood. But you wouldn't ever find anything like a dinosaur because the mountains not only predate dinosaurs, they predate bones. Oh, wow. That's extraordinary. Yeah. And, and if you can get a, a horror story idea for that and what might be under there, especially when you have all these people digging mines down deep, you, you, you might pick a new career path. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to send you a picture of one of the trees that was cut down when they were first foresting in my area. This is what it looked like when the settlers arrived. Well, once cameras existed. Oh, wow. Yeah. For, for those who don't have... The tree, there's two men standing in front of a tree, and it almost looks like a cave entrance. It's about four feet over the top of the taller one's head. But yeah, I'll, I'll post there, this on the uh, the podcast Instagram uh, when this episode releases. So you're going to have a look I'll, at this. I'll, find, I'll dig up a good photo. historical link for that, too, with a couple others. Yeah, perfect. Um, report, early, early reports for when... Western settlers were moving in. There were places where the pine needles were four feet deep. So old, old stuff. Very old. Yeah. Fertile ground for uh, for the imagination to run wild. You know, just being mm -hmm. surrounded by that. So I, I think you know, like history has weight. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know what you believe. Um, I don't think it matters what anyone believes, really. But like when you when you're in a place that's really old. When the things around you have been, to all intents and purposes, from the perspective of the human being, constant, I think there is a weight there. There's a sort of a, a gravity all its own. And, uh, speaking of stories and old things and mysterious things, <laughs> the Mothman of Point Pleasant. West Virginia's favorite son. Yeah. <laughs> Most famous resident, probably. Yeah, so... You, you, you've got more than a passing interest in Mothman, I believe. Yeah, ironically, despite it being a local cryptid, it was not my favorite as a kid. I was mm. always a Loch Ness Monster and Sea Serpent kind of guy. Oh, yeah, understandable. But it's really grown on me in years. As a kid, honestly, the Mothman scared the crap out of me. I, I would run dash bash the windows at night when I had to go to the bathroom because I was afraid he'd be at my window looking in at me. Because he was just... <laughs> you know mm. two counties over yeah and if i'd known then what i know now some of the sightings are in my were in my home city <laughs> really <laughs> yeah wow that's, so. a, uh, that's a thing probably best that you didn't know when you were at the stage where oh, you were running past windows. yeah <laughs> um, the the my introduction to the mothman in the book american's very own monsters mm -hmm. wasn't your traditional mothman kind of looks like a you know big owl with big glowing eyes and if you mm. look at the original drawings he's kind of goofy he's not that scary i mean if a seven foot tall monster of any kind was chasing me in the middle of the night i i'd be scared but oh yeah you know look at, at him he's he's cute 
Whereas in this book, it was, we'll say, dramatically reinterpreted by the artist to look like Nosferatu with wings and big glowing eyes. <laughs> Which, you know, eight-year-old me was not into that. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so um, just on the off chance that the, uh, the one person in the world that hasn't heard of Mothman is listening, uh, could you give us a little brief overview? of well, the story sure mothman and i have no head for dates so was originally cited as far as we know by a group of grave diggers in clendenin west virginia they'd reported it as a large bird in a tree it flew over them a couple nights later in a place called point pleasant west virginia which is Right across the river from Gallipolis, Ohio, um, across the very infamous Silver Bridge, a young couple, you know, two young couples, were out driving in what is referred to as the TNT area. The TNT area is where they manufactured TNT and other things during World War II, and the whole area is very forested with little paths and stuff cutting back in through there and there are these concrete igloos that are covered in earth and brush probably less so back in the 60s than there are now to hide it from potential bombing or whatever they were worried about so they're back there and they're driving and they just see an enormous thing with standing by the road seven foot tall dark gray or dark brown glowing eyes the size of your fists that people have reported as burning to look at searing into your soul haunting and they did what any sensible people would do they got the heck out of dodge they floored it and they look up and it's flying behind them the driver said he hit up to 100 miles per hour trying getting back to town and it kept up with them right up to the edge of town when it veered off they went in reported it to the sheriff it got on the local news originally it was referred to as the bird um eventually somebody who was a fan of the 60s batman show or otherwise Decided to coin the term Mothman, despite it not actually resembling a moth. It is always described as more of an owl-like creature. You know, stumpy head, uh, big flappy wings, kind of fur or feathers. And from there, it kind of took a life of its own. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of other sightings being the area that it is in my wonderful homeland, tons of people and pickups with guns going out to try to find the thing and shoot it, take pictures, see it. Um, and it was just an incredible circus. That's where author and investigator John Keel came in. And the, the, the ending of the story, not necessarily the ending of the sightings, but the bridge, the silver bridge that connects Ohio and West Virginia, a week or so before Christmas, 
collapsed full of people and cars. They determined it was like a, a single bolt failed on it and it caused a lot of uh, different security features and bridges now, but a lot of people died. They're always, the takeaway I always had was the p- vision of Christmas presents floating on the water, bubbling out from all the cars that were trapped. Some of the bodies were never found. And after that, people didn't really talk about Mothman much until Keel published his book. Some people say the sightings continued, but nobody really cared that much to, you know, go beat down the bushes with everything going on. Some people say that it was a warning, an omen of tragedy occurring. Some people think that it caused that, that there were sightings near the bridge at the time. Um, And it's been linked to other disasters. Um, I think a lot of that probably actually came from the movie. Because if you've seen the Mothman Prophecies movie with Richard Gere, um, he speaks to a character inspired by John Keel uh, last name Leak, which is Keel spelled backwards. And it pulls up a bunch of fake news articles with Mothman being cited at Chernobyl and the like. Yeah, I have seen the movie, I think. Um, in fact, I know I've seen the movie, but it's, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. Yeah, I, I do want to have a rewatch at some point, so I remember quite liking it. But yeah, the, the whole John Keel situation is interesting to me because he was um, fairly big in the whole like paranormal investigator world isn't he Mm -hmm. he was definitely one of the big influences um i would almost describe him as maybe a set of the second generation Mm -hmm. coming after sanderson and the like cryptozoology wise yeah but he was always two feet deep into the paranormal and ufology which rubbed a lot of people the long way wrong way Mm. um i can't (laughs) <laughs> tell you how much of what he he said and did was made up or just bsing people for fun but he was a definitely controversial figure him and um gary barker yeah um, they, of West they Virginia rivals frame. or my they worked together a lot but uh barker was um a notorious troll He's hmm. the one who coined the term men in black. Oh yeah. Um, wrote a couple of books on the subject, but it is confirmed that some of his stuff was written as fiction and firmly tongue in cheek. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, a big part of the whole, uh, I don't know. In, in my head, I always sort of categorize this kind of stuff. Um, in the same sort of category as folklore. Uh, I think like, you know, with folklore, myth, um, with urban legends, all that sort of stuff, like it all bleeds into fiction and vice versa. And sometimes it's hard to draw the line where like to figure out whether this is actually something that someone experienced, which even if it's something that someone experienced, it doesn't mean it's objectively true. But, you know, whether it's something someone experienced or whether it's fiction that's then influenced someone's experiences, there's a lot of gray lines in this sort of area, which fascinates me endlessly. Uh, and I think a lot of these, you know, as you're saying, like, you know, a lot of Barker's stuff was explicitly fiction. I think that sort of feeds into it. I think there's often a 
a, a thinner line between history and fiction than we like to think there is. And I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. So you mentioned about um, Mossman as sort of omen. You know, that's a, a sentiment I've certainly heard before. And I think that is quite interesting in and of itself, because I think it almost casts Mothman as like a good guy, if you know what I mean, like almost like a hero, like trying to warn people about, you know, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which obviously was a massive tragedy. And I don't want to oh yes, yeah, trivialize it by just making it like a tiny component of a story about a alien extra dimensional moth being. But um, yeah, I mean... I don't know of any other parallels, though, really, like anything else like it, like um, in any sort of... Well, in a lot of ways, I would think it goes back to le- similar to legend like the Banshees or um, the Black Dogs in England. Well, sure, yeah, the Banshees and Islands. Seeing them as an omen of doom, and sometimes mm-hmm. they're foretelling it, sometimes it's causing it. There are definitely people who believe that Mothman brings the curse with them mm-hmm. and the deciding is bad news. Um, oh yeah for sure there were a lot of sightings for they called the Chicago Mothman a few years ago though interestingly I think it was more of a paradactyl type creature Mm -hmm. if you believe such things but I um, I I tagged Jim Butcher once and asked what Harry Dresden was doing to call the Mothman down on him (laughs) Uh, that'd I did be an not interesting get a response. Over. I was very disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the uh, the Dresden Files series of novels. Yes, yeah. I've I I've read them. Um, I, I I quite like them in a in a certain way, and I do think he's like the whole kitchen sink approach isn't something I'd do myself, but it's um it's got a lot going for it. So yes, Bigfoot in those to to some extent, doesn't he? Like mm-hmm. big feet. Jim actually like plays with a lot of uh cryptozoological folklore and stuff in those i'm um, not just yeah. bigfoot but if you've read uh, his other book uh whose name i can't remember right offhand the ones that were inspired by lost roman legion and pokemon his fantasy series Is that codex alera yeah the codex alera thank you yeah oh. um one of the opponents is a group of huge wolf-like people and they have a word for honored opponent that is something like Gadara, which is an incredibly obscure reference to a wolfman sighting by a security guard, I think up in Wisconsin, somewhere in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. The security cult stumbled upon it digging at a burial mound and said it uttered something similar to the word Gadara. And the, I, I'm reading along and I see that and I have to go like two by shelf and make sure I'm remembering this correctly because it's not something I expected to trip over in a, you know, slocky fantasy novel. Yeah, that's specific. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually, like managing to work that sort of stuff in. Yeah, I it, it's all, all those little Easter eggs are always such a treat when you come across them. Oh yeah, for sure. And it makes me wonder how much I've missed in the Dresden Files. Like how many references I've missed because I just didn't know. It's probably a lot. Probably every sentence is another reference to something. Uh, uh, and a lot of kill stuff shows up in unexpected 
places because um, if you wanted one of his books to go off to, I highly recommend the Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings because it's just his take on a wide variety of subjects from mm-hmm. one-off oddity sightings to the an entire chapter of Mothman, Sea Serpents, The Grinning Man, a lot of things like that. Highly recommend, even even if it's showing its age as a book that was published in the 70s. And, and as a writer, an incredible source of information, even the things that have been since disproved. It's something that makes you think, well, what is down there? Um, mm. Things like tractor-like patterns in the mud at the bottom of the seafloor. Or a submarine took a picture of what it appeared to be a antenna at the bottom of the sea. And it turned out um, that was real. There's a species of coral that grows and looks exactly like a TV antenna. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Back to Mothman style stuff. In around the Point Pleasant area um, in the same sort of period as Mothman, as the Mothman sightings were sort of going on in the run-up to the collapse of the Silver Bridge, there were a couple of encounters with another sort of mysterious thing, weren't there? Um, was it sort of something which presented as a human, and in reality probably was a human, um, called Indrid Cold. Uh, have you heard about that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, the initial sighting of Indrid Cold, I think, was actually very close to where I grew up. Oh, yeah. Um, Indrid Cold was interesting. I'm There's some dispute on why it gets linked to the Mothman, because there wasn't really any kind of direct interaction besides similar place and time. Um, he was described, he looked perfectly human. Um, his grin gets mentioned a lot. Um, he was probably one of the first um, grinning men, as they're called, that gets brought up. Uh, he you, was sorry. Could you okay. expand on the idea of the yes. grinning men? Because I'm not familiar with that. Grinning men are related to the men in black and also Mm -hmm. potentially fairy sightings if you read kill stuff just a relatively ordinary looking person um uh, but something's off about them they smile a little too wide their clothes are perfectly neat and pressed and look brand new but they're you know 20 years out of style um they drive vehicles again that are should be 20 years old but they look like they just rolled off the lot Um, cases where they'll be given water or um, other day-to-day objects and don't seem to understand what they are Um, Mm. it's a very fascinating thing Um, you can kind of go off on it on the own there there away from the mothman on that um i believe i'm trying to f- pull that up the first cold sighting yeah parkersburg west virginia um a fellow called willie darren was driving home 
and he sees a vehicle on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. He described it as an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney. chimney which people believe to be a, well, not a UFO, because we knew what it was, but a spaceship. Hmm. And Ingrid Colt spoke to him uh, telepathically and explained he was from a planet called Lanulos. And they would have multiple other encounters. Um, Derenberger wrote a book. He claimed he was taken to Lanulos. There's a lot of anti-nuclear messaging in this. Mm. So, um, it's an interesting tale. I, I, I'm not the expert on that one compared to Mothman, but I have read the book. Sure. Um, he had reporters camped outside of his house. Um, the one character in the Mothman movie is inspired by him, but he reporters would camp outside his house hoping for a glimpse of the alien. Um, according mm. to Woody himself, one day Indra just showed up in a regular. Oh, car walked in. They sat down, had a meeting, and he left. And none of them thought anything of it because he looked like a perfectly ordinary man. All, all part of the high strangeness that was going on in West Virginia at the time. That's my favorite term in the world. Is high I strangeness. Love that term. Yeah, I'm just trying to sort of like scratch the surface on that sort of stuff. But it's man, there's some great stories floating around. And what I find really interesting is the idea that like these kind of these phenomena they tend it almost seems like they tend to cluster, right? So, like, the Mothman and Injured Cold happened around the same area around the same time, I, I believe. It was around right. the same time, anyway. Yeah, uh, within the same year, at yeah. least to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something else Keel goes into. Um, window areas and time points mm-hmm. where you don't just get one odd thing. You get odd thing after odd thing, as if something extraterrestrial extra dimensional magical supernatural is a little closer to the surface there at the time and on a skeptic side you can once you're believing in flying monsters and mass hysteria and stuff sets in other things pop up people are paying more attention to that sort of thing mm-hmm. you can really take it Either way. Yeah. 100%. I've, I've heard of an idea where um, people sort of try and associate Mothman with like nuclear things, like, you know, nuclear physics type things. Like they say there was government stuff going on around the area. Like, in, uh, I don't know if that's anything to do with the TNT factory or not, mm-hmm. but. Officially, the TNT area was not active. Uh-huh. There was definitely some government stuff going on in that area, but having also grown up in that area, there's often government stuff going on in that area. Right. Um, okay. That's interesting. I don't know if there was anything nuclear going on at the time. I know some of that is definitely brought in by Keel's book because he was receiving anti-nuclear weaponry, anti-nuclear um, power messages as part of his other encounters if you've mm-hmm. never read the book it is very different than the movie the movie focused largely on the events in point pleasant mm-hmm. while that's only maybe 10 15 percent of the actual book the book itself goes off on 
many tangents and oddities concerning extraterrestrial visitors, visions, haunted places, other encounters, the phone company. Mm, the phone Bring company. This and kills own life. Uh, apparently, yeah. the FBI hates the CIA. The CIA hates the FBI, and both of them hate the phone company. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, he, if you're again, depending on how much trust you put into Kiel, um, his phone was tapped. He found out that he had another lot phone line going into his home that was not. You know, registered, listed, or paid for, but would go connect to his phone. So him being him, he started having people call that number because he wouldn't have to pay the long distance charges, and it went straight to his phone. It, it's a fascinating read if you're at all interested in the subject. Yeah, definitely going to add that to the list. Um, and on that note, the other uh, more biological end. A lot of people wondered if it was literally just a large bird or mutation. Things mm -hmm. from that were stored in the igloos seeping into the groundwater. And mm. there is definitely chemicals that were seeping into the ground and the groundwater. It's been a reclamation area for a while now. So it could do feel sort of a um, bird with a with gigantism or something, like some kind of owl with gigantism or whatever the, you know, our equivalent of gigantism is uh yeah i, th I think in, in a sort of materialistic perspective that's the most realistic sort of explanation um if we're looking at like if if, if we sort of say yes there was a, th a physical thing that people were seeing then that does seem like the most likely physical thing that people would be seeing i suppose like a massive huge owl and it definitely makes sense. Uh, there's yeah. a joke going around that all cryptids are actually either owls or bears. But mm. I, I always try to listen to people. And one of the things I hate being from, you know, a relatively rural area is when people see the site, these sightings and they they say it's something easily. Somebody claimed Maltman was actually a sandhill crane and like. If it were me, I would rather you tell, you, you accuse me of making something up and being a fantastic liar than mm. claiming that I, I would mistake a little bird for a six-foot-tall red-eyed monster. <laughs> yeah, like because you know I, I, I grew up sort of semi-rural myself, and uh, I know what the animals around me look like. Exactly. Like M maybe they're, not they're all, all the of bloody them, but, but if you saw. You saw a crane, and you you can look. Guys can look up what a sandhill crane looks like. I've seen them at the zoo. Mm -hmm. um, they're not scary. No. <laughs> like like I could understand maybe one or two people got tripped up against a big bird, got scared, but mm -hmm. there were a lot of sightings. Yeah. Now now a very lar unusually large owl, which is not outside the realms of physical possibility. It mm. Gigantism and species does happen um, and just outliers. That's mm. a little bit more reasonable and potentially scary. I don't think it was a seven-foot-tall owl. But no. If you're going to disbelieve any kind of paranormal explanation, that, that one is at least the, the more respectful one. Yeah, and sure. I have tripped tri across odd animals up in the hills from time to time. Mm. Um, I, I've seen a salamander that was 
four times larger than its species should be. I mean, that was a total, you know, half a foot because it's a very small species of salamander. But Hmm. (laughs) um, I saw a snake that I've never been able to identify. A couple other things. Nothing huge and frightening and impressive, but stuff's out there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think there's a limit to how big things can be and still go unnoticed, though. I mean, to a certain extent, like, like if there was... So obviously Mothman didn't go unnoticed. If Mothman was a giant bird, then obviously he got seen. But like, if there was a lot of them, I feel like we'd know about it. You know what I mean? Right. So this this isn't like an unidentified species we're dealing with here because large flying animals tend to be fairly easy to spot. And that's why a lot of people either go to the paranormal or alien explanation or extra dimensional, mm-hmm. which is just kind of alien light that it was something yeah. not from here that ended up here. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, is, is a very compelling idea. You know, it's um, like from just from a storytelling perspective, like I'm, I'm just from like a storytelling perspective, I'm very fond of the whole omen of doom aspect, and I'm very fond of the extra dimensional idea. Like though, like just from you know what makes a good story, those are the bits which most grab me. Um, but like from I'll a, agree. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, but like from a, if we're trying to exclude anything that's not within the realms of known science, then uh, an owl who has a gross disorder is probably what I would go with. Yep. And owls are scary. <laughs> yeah. You've yeah, never yeah. had the pleasure of tripping, tripping across a two or three foot owl when you weren't expecting it. We um, don't have a lot that big over here, but um, yeah, I've, I've certainly seen owl eyes reflecting light back at me in the dark and been scared like for a second until I realized what it was. Like there's that moment. I think with predatory birds in general, I think it, when you sort of like suddenly see one where you weren't expecting it, especially when it's dark, there is this little split second where you forget that you're not a mouse. I, I grew up near an airfield. Oh, yeah. A couple miles away. And it would very rarely do you, uh, you'd see planes in the air. I was mm-hmm. walking along one day and somebody in a little prop plane was flying very low over, but high enough that you couldn't hear it. So just enough where this shadow passed right over me and I had like five seconds of my brain screaming Rodan was going to eat me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A a very deep primal fear there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all descended from small little mouse like mammals. If you go far enough back, like Mm -hmm. I think that like that, those instincts are still in us somewhere. Like when things fly overhead, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're definitely a moment of pure intimidation there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of other explanations for the Mothman, there's a there's a mystical one that I've heard, which is um the the cornstalk curse. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Um, one of his descendants actually presented at the Mothman festival I was able to attend. Oh yeah. She personally does not believe that he laid a curse, that that is just folklore or mythology. Mm-hmm. I'm inclined to agree with her from that perspective. Yeah. But on the counterpoint, I do like threatening to curse white people sometimes. Yeah. 
And uh, just for the audience, you might not be aware, um, the, the Cornstalk curse, uh, please correct me if I get this wrong here, but uh, Cornstalk was the sort of English name given to uh, a local Native American leader who had at one point been oh, uh, arrested. He was yeah. arrested for things that were not done by himself or members of his group. Mm-hmm. Um, but by people passing through and while he was in jail, he was assassinated by the locals and therefore the, uh, the mythology folklore says that because he was killed unjustly and terribly, he put a curse upon the land of Point Pleasant for a hundred years and that Mothman and all the other things are a part of this curse. Yes, thank you. I, I'd, um, I was about to really stuff up the details on that one, so I, I had uh, to pull it up myself. So yeah, <laughs> well, uh, thank you to Wikipedia, um, the third silent person on the podcast. That I've never found particularly compelling because my my gut instinct when I don't know if this is just me being a bit uh, dismissive here, but my gut instinct when um, I hear about like Native American curses or like Native American burial grounds or anything like that. It's just to go. That's just settlers being silly. Um, Usually. Yeah. Because uh-huh. I, I don't know how correct this is, but I've been like, I've heard before that um, most Native American like cultures, because um, obviously it's not a monolith, but like, like most of them don't assign any real particular significance to like burial grounds or anything like that. Like it's, it's more of a movie trope than it is like a historical thing. I don't know how correct that is. I think there, well, I, the ideas of disturbing the native American burial ground come from movies such as Amityville and um, Poltergeist. Of course, there were sacred burial grounds. There were the mounds. Uh, we don't actually know a lot about the mound building culture in that area simply because they were gone before um, settlers were there to record anything. Right. Unfortunately, you had a lot of cases where diseases like smallpox were carried by traders and stuff across the country long before anyone was there to, well, not anyone, but before any record people recording stuff were there and would wipe mm-hmm. out entire nations and villages sometimes. Yeah. So um, there is a lot of interest in culture with the mounds and the ba- various burial sites there. But okay. That's as a whole, you know, Indian country does not like those to be disturbed for obvious reasons. And, there's yeah, also a lot of superstition and folklore lore built around them too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to be fair, like we're not super fond, like in England, we're not super fond of people disturbing burial sites either. Like, you know, I think that's just a natural sort of human reaction to some extent. Like you want, you, you want those sort of things left undisturbed. Um, right. Like for example, in my village, where I live, there is an old burial ground, which um, is 
really old. Um, I, no one's been buried there for hundreds of years. All the gravestones are gone. That's how old it is. And it's just an empty plot on like the main road of this village because no, like you won't be allowed to build on it because it's like an old burial ground. But no one thinks that if like there's not this idea that you know if you build on it then there'll be poltergeists. It's just it's just like a respect for the dead thing. If you know what exactly. I mean. And I think that's how, again, we're not a monolith by far. I think there's over 500 federally recognized tribes just in the United States. And that's not even going into Canada and other indigenous areas. But I, I think a lot of times it's more of a respect thing than a magical hoodoo thing. Yeah, that's that's always been what my assumption is. So... One more thing about Mothman that I feel like I have to cover. That, uh, like, I haven't known peace since I've seen the photo of the statue. For those who aren't aware, there's a statue of Mothman where the sculptor made rather impressive use of artistic license. And he gave the multidimensional omen of doom. Well, I mean... The sculptor is of the opinion that the Mothman does his squats, to say the least. Is that is that statue in Point Pleasant? Mm-hmm. Downtown Point Pleasant. I have a few pictures of my myself next to it. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have a human head, but like he's just got this like very well formed human ass. An absolute dump truck. Absolute dump truck. Yeah, like it's just. <laughs> I, I I got a warning in the Discord for sharing a picture of that once. It it is so absolutely well defined. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, it, it, it's a statue in Dale Tail in public. <laughs> it's by a school. By a it's school. That's that, the, that, well, uh, not that close, but within walking distance. I'm like, it's near a park. Like I, I didn't think I was going to get my only warning I've ever had for posting a picture of a statue. But there it is. <laughs> it's it's just it's just fantastic. I love I, I love that that statue exists. Um, I want to meet the sculptor. It, it's quite a popular thing in um, in sort of like self-published sort of like erotica and like erotic romance stuff. Is like thing around like people like erotica with monsters. And I feel like Mothman's a semi-popular sort of target for that. I don't know if target's the right word. A subject. Yeah. Um, th- there is, I, I assume it's because of the statue mm-hmm. that there is a lot of memes going around with Mothman is the sexiest cryptid and that Mothman <laughs> is my boyfriend and you can find bumper stickers and stuff. Yeah. And a- 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 as I shared with you under my, the pen name that I published with my right wife mm. raven west i actually published a parody of the mothman prophecies um of that kind <laughs> <laughs> perfect so. i i'm i'm gonna have to read that just yeah the curiosity is overwhelming but of course mothman i was isn't... writing a serious story and all the memes and the stuff just kind of got in my head. I'm like, okay, I have to go put this on paper somewhere else so it doesn't bleed over. So Yeah, yeah, you got to get it out of your head and onto the page sometimes, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. You just have to. But of course, um, the 
like Mothman is not like the only target of this sort of the cryptid uh, erotica community, is he? Like, no. At one point, um, author Virginia Wade mm-hmm. was pulling in six figures a month for her um, Bigfoot series, mm. and it got so much publicity that is why Amazon cracked down on a lot of that and made it harder to find it's still there but you really have to know what you're searching for it's not gonna show up under your kindle recommends mm, you can't you can't just stumble across the uh yeah. the, the the monster fucker books unless you're me and it's just but and there's a lot of edge cases now there there's the erotic romance books that feature a lot of shapeshifters and borderline cases and gargoyles and dragons and yeah yeah i mean even even vampires are kind of like an edge case because they are explicitly non-human right like they're mythological things um right then obviously i know werewolves are popular in that area but just sticking to cryptids like um I'm, i'm curious you might know better than i do has anyone ever written anything like that about the jersey devil um yes I, I know there have i don't think i've ever read one of those i do occasionally have to check check out just to see what's there but, yeah um, sure jersey devil definitely has a few um I, i've seen sea serpents but honestly I, I honestly that one was technically a horror novel i came across a very odd um, story about the Ho Dog, which is a Wisconsin, not even quite cryptid. It's a fearsome creature, and it was obviously made up by a human being as part of like the lumberjack lore. Mm. So I, I've seen that, and it, if you look hard enough, somebody has written it. Yeah. <laughs> the, and if the they jelly- didn't, somebody's listening to this, and they're going to. I yeah, hope so. Is. Ravished by the Jersey Devil. Perfect. Yeah, I love yeah. the. I love how clear and concise the title is. You know, like you got to appreciate that. There's no obscurity there. You know exactly what you're getting into. Exactly. As soon as you crack that open. Yeah, I, I, I that was my sales sales mistake. I went with the coming of the Mothman. Suppose you get to a certain point in the in the book and you realize just how apt that title is. I, I think at least one of my reviewers did not realize that going into the book. If you go on my Goodreads oh. page, oh no, um, I, I will spoil the surprise. <laughs> hey, he gave me a good review. Well, the gentleman seemed a little confused, but he was vi- that is my favorite review of anything I've written. Okay, I'm gonna have to so. read this review. All right. I find it a bunch of more, but I don't think I can repeat any of the titles on this podcast. You can repeat whatever you want on this podcast. It's, so. uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, because uh. this one is Jerked Off by the Jersey Devil. Oh, man. By Colleen J. Harrington. And it has a five-star rating on Goodreads. Oh, hey. <laughs> and there's certainly an audience for it. The, the the Jersey Devil in particular interests me in that area because I th- I, if we apply like you know standard sort of 
biology logic to the Jersey Devil, then correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't the Jersey Devil like it's like a mutant human child, according to the folklore originally? That is one of the big folklores that um, Mother Leeds had 12 children and she got um, pregnant with the 13th and (laughs) said, I don't want any more children. Let the last one be a devil. And then when it was born, it had wings and was a monster and flew off into the woods. And the whole thing sounds like it's probably some horribly ableist fairy tale, but yes, it does. Um, there's uh, some really fascinating lore up there that I'm not as familiar as with some of my local stuff. Um, small town monsters, if you're not familiar, they're one of the uh, big folklore cryptic groups. Um, actually, has a Kickstarter out on that right now. Oh, yeah. they, their next uh, film for this coming year is Jersey Devil, Werewolves, Bigfoots, and UFOs. Oh, cool. Yeah, the, the, the reason I bring that up is because, um, like, biologically speaking, if we take that uh, Mother Leeds origin story for the Jersey Devil mm-hmm. as true, then the Jersey Devil is human. Right. Uh, if you're born from a human, you'd at least biologically be human yeah unless yeah. you're again counting magic unless you're counting magic but let's just put that aside for one second and yeah. uh just accept that if we accept that the jersey devil is human then here's a little philosophical question for you these erotic novels where people have such encounters with the jersey devil is that just normal erotica or is that monster erotica i think it's just normal erotica yeah. Because if it was Wolverine, because he's he's human, but he's a mutant, so he's not human. But you wouldn't consider that to be monster erotica. Like you're completely or, right. Or even like Nightcrawler, if you want to go for a mm-hmm. little otter, otter look there. Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I have to I have to agree with you there. If he is human, then it would be, um, regular erotica. Yeah, this is yeah, this is exactly what I've been working towards this whole podcast. Um, <laughs> the statement that Jersey Devil porn is not monster porn; it's normal porn. That way, you're trying to explain to the officers. <laughs> yes, I, I am absolutely fascinated by, but as as a writer, by both the variety of erotica that is existing on not just like obscure tur- turn the lights off and go into private mode when you're browsing them, but in like mainstream Barnes and Noble, Amazon Kindle, but mm. also the sheer amount of categorization yeah. that romance in general. Yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've like, that. like horror has some very big categories you know, you have splatter punk. You have like the slow burn ghost story, haunted house stuff, creature features, you slashers, things that are actually more suspense but are kind of closer to horror, that sort of thing. But with romance, they get so incredibly specific, and the tropes can be so incredibly specific that you can find exactly what you want and i think that's a big reason it is the best-selling genre like period like if you're like you know what i want clean 
Amish romance set in the 1950s, and that's like a thing. <laughs> like you will find 20 books of just that, and probably one author who has written half of them, and that's just her niche. Yeah, I mean, so, I suppose it's it, it's certainly a like a, a way to do it, right? Like, because like because it's so specific. Essentially, customers like readers are telling you exactly what they want, so you just kind of have to give it to them, right? Like. Yeah, I do wonder how that sort of that culture within romance readers developed. It developed because you can publish enough to let it develop. Uh, there are people I um, I've mentioned before that I'm in a couple of romance discords. Mm-hmm. I kind of ended there because they were advertised as fantasy discords, which included um, fantasy and romance will overlap in some of the especially you know urban fantasy paranormal romance yeah yeah right the two genres are essentially the same thing now more or less like there's a there's a couple of urban fantasy series out there that aren't romance but most current series being published are romances i think yeah it's it's a very it's not even a thin line it's a wide murky swamp between the two two genres (laughs) yeah um and well, and same thing with horror. Uh, I actually consider it all kind of one continuum, because the difference between a horror book and an urban fantasy book is how capable the character, the main character is. I agree. If the I main character is a badass ex Navy SEAL with silver bullets, it's urban fantasy. If he's mm-hmm. an accountant, it's a horror. Even if every other piece of the setup is the same. Mm. but some of these people like i i i I claim to have read 50 and if we're counting half those were probably graphic novels and novellas last books last year Mm -hmm. i know people who read three to five hundred books in a year and that's not even necessarily most of those being new books that is the you know, the white whales in the Kindle Unlimited world. That that is the people that you're publishing for. The Jesus. ones who like these who find these very specific things they like or like a variety of things and you know they they want to eat out here and go out there and check this out. Mm. And that's why it's flor- allowed to flourish. Uh, same, same thing you see less organized i think in manga in japan these days i don't think mm-hmm. that it gets quite as genre but e- even things like and i can never pronounce the word the ordinary high school student gets hit by a bus and wakes up in a fantasy world genre is such a big thing for mm-hmm. such a specific concept that there are dozens if not hun- hundreds of examples being published mm-hmm. because the market's there yeah and I think that's something that horror and mainstream fantasy and sci-fi don't have. No, but I think with um, like with the sort of this, the speculative genres, you know, obviously aside from the stuff which sort of the the romance ones, which I think more follow the sort of general rules of romance than they do with speculative fiction. I think there's a desire within both the writers and the readership to sort of try and be different and be experimental. Like it's not really like a comfort food type consumption. Whereas I think for a lot of like romance stuff and I don't know anything about manga, but by the sounds of it, maybe that too. um... I think it goes both ways. 
because you do have your um, experimental romance, and sometimes those fizzle, and sometimes those are now the next big thing. Yeah. Okay. But you have the same thing in horror. If if I was it Dar- Darcy Cotes, um, she's written like a dozen haunted house books, and my, my wife loves them, but they're very, very you know similar plot points, and that's not a criticism. You you pick that up and you know where you're getting, and it, it's a nice, comfortable read. It, it's a chain restaurant a, a equivalent of a novel, and there's a lot of that. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with creature feature features. You know, there there's a there's a variety, but it, a lot of them are by the books. Monster shows up, monster kills a bunch of people, setback, then final confrontation, but something goes wrong. But at the last minute, you save the day. Well, except for every once in a while in horror, you don't save the day. <laughs> but... No, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you are, you, you're entirely right, actually. Um, I kind of wish I hadn't made that last point because I'm obviously so wrong. But, well, uh... <laughs> you, that's because you're, re- you're reading the fringe stuff, you, you, you know, the yeah, new stuff, the yeah. academic stuff, the stuff by up-and-coming people that's establishing it's, itself. And, and that's, but you and I both are in the same discord there with howls yeah. mm-hmm. and, and we're hitting a variety but yeah you know you have the 50 ripoffs of whatever the last thing stephen king published is you have your haunted house stories you you have your tropey books you have your hor- horror novel equivalent of the slashers and halloween and a werewolf movie and it, it's not that they can't be groundbreaking and different but you know, there's definitely that uh, Walmart paperback of horror still too. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff's really, really fun. Right? Um, oh yes, I love a good haunted house story. I could read them forever. Um, uh, my, my my favorite genre in the world is what I call like to call my uh, used bookstore paperbacks. Oh yeah, <laughs> just because I, there was a used bookstore near where I grew up, and I would go, and I can't read fantasy and sci-fi because they're all twenty books long series back in the night eighties and nineties, and you're not going to mm. find every book in a series there. Yeah. So I read a whole lot of horror because it's one book, two books. Pick mm-hmm. it up. This has a neat monster on the cover. It's a dollar, and they're just incredible amounts of fun or hmm. completely terrible <laughs> i'm really curious like you might have some insight into this what, what do you think a draw like draws a fair amount of people uh into the uh, like sort of the like monster erotica sort of area like just to go back to that briefly because i'm really curious about that like because like it's a big enough thing to sustain like dozens of careers you know so like, i think a- some uh, some of it is some of it is just monsters are sexy. They're everything we are, but more. They're bigger. They're stronger. If you're fantasizing about um, a, a very strong person, you could never hope to fight about desiring you or that sort of thing. In, in other cases, it's different biology. It's stuff you could only achieve using a series of very expensive equipment. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> and sometimes it's novelty. Um, same thing you see a lot of books with uh, 
fellows with wings and who can fly during activities and sure. other things. So, I mean, in other times, it's kind of displaced genres that are no longer considered. Well, a lot of people these days who read would happily read a book about a tourist going into to another planet and their ship crashing and then meeting the local barbarian group of sexy rustic men and having adventures and also having adventures but <laughs> would never think to read you know what the 1940s equivalent which would be pioneer women and reminder i'm cherokee i'm allowed to say this you know the local savages it hitting hitting a lot of the plot points without with taking a lot of the problematic elements out you know it it's the same thing it's westerns and uh bodice rippers for the space age or sure yeah that's a that's a good point about like uh pointing out the sort of the continuity of it like going back to at the very least the sort of you know as you say the penny dreadful era like mm-hmm. as soon as there was like cheaply available mass literature, there was things of this nature to some degree or another. Uh, like this genre, in some shape or form, has existed since then. And I um, think the other half of that is just having a supernatural protector who, as a partner, is very appealing to a lot of people. Mm. Again, depending where on the spectrum, whether you're more of the wholesome side or more of the, we'll say, less wholesome side. Yeah. And, and no judgment either way. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> honestly, I, I'm surprised there, I haven't run across more papers on this and what and it appeals to people. So, and especially with the variety, because you kind of start with the um, uh, same thing you see in a lot of anime, where where the monster is just a human being who's very traditionally attractive, but they have a different skin color, so they're like purple and have horns. Mm. Versus some of the very, um, I know there's one book series of spider people aliens and i have not read that one i think they're kind of centaurs but spiders that that some people i know have read and and that's less mainstream and i think the further you get for from mainstream on things like that the less popular it is Mm -hmm. so or i shouldn't say i shouldn't say less popular because the more niche it is sure yeah so it's such a very odd fascinating thing uh, if i ever saw a researcher or if i was that sort of researcher I, I feel like i could spend years of my life looking into it that is interesting yeah i mean i'm, I'm not going to pretend that i understand the draw but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that sort of stuff's out there for the people who do enjoy reading it you know like more literature is never a bad thing well we've covered a lot haven't we in this little chat we've uh we've gone from you know your your background growing up in West Virginia, Appalachia. Uh, we've spoken a lot about Mothman, and uh, we've 
talked quite a lot about monster porn. That's how most conversations with me start out. Grounded, nice earth, and then monster porn. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> perfect. All right. Um, I think we can call it a night. Um, today. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop recording and then I'll ask you more questions about monster porn. All right. Thank you very much for having me. I Oh no, thanks for coming on, man. It's been fun. It definitely's been fun. Thank you for listening to Terrify Me with Anthony Frost. The theme music is by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com and used under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Terrify Me Pod all one word. For more from me, visit anthonyfrost.com or follow me on Twitter at Anthony R. Frost. That's Anthony without an H. See you next time.